Welcome to Unwrapped, a podcast all about chocolate. Brian and I love to talk about chocolate, and we've decided to record our weekly chats and make them available. We'd love to hear from you and learn more about what you'd like to hear about. Or you can leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud, or reach out directly to us on social media, myself at Chocolate Garage and Brian at Abandoned Coffee. Thank you for listening. Can you, let me see if I can put this phone somewhere so this won't happen. One second. Uh, Do you work at a call center, Alan? I do. You know, I get like 50 calls a day and it's all but maybe one call every couple of days is like junk calls, telemarketers. I get about 50 calls a day and about 49 of them are Sunita. (laughs) So you're kind of reinforcing my idea that I'm not as good of a friend as Sunita as I thought I was. (laughs) Uh So as I was trying to call you, Brian, Alan was like, is your first name Anne? Because my Skype address is like my full name. Right. And it's, it's you know, did you know that my first name was Anne, Brian? I did. But only because of oh, Skype. Oh, Alan. That must, that must hurt, Alan. <laughs> no, it was only because um, I've been, so, it's only because I've been on Skype longer. That's true. So just to reassure you, Alan, that um, I have friends that I've known since like university days and even before who don't know that my first name is Anne and that I go by my second name just because that's what people chose when I was a kid. Um, and actually, it almost got me into big trouble one year because I um, I was sort of in between statuses here in the United States and I was doing a border crossing. And the weird thing is, of course, my passport says full name, A-N-N-E, which is the French version of Anne, which Americans say Annie. And so I was standing, I was sitting at a border crossing waiting because they were going to ask me some questions. <clears throat> and I was kind of panicked because like I wasn't totally legit, like I was getting close to overstaying. And uh, they called me up and I said I had, I had told them that I was going to see this friend of mine. And I realized that this woman, if they had called her and said, is it true that your friend Annie is coming to visit you? She would have been like, I don't know any Annie. <laughs> right. And I would have been screwed. Yes. So it, it is uh, it is very common that even people who've known me forever don't realize my first name is Anne. You could have hyphenated, you, you know, Anne Sunita. Yeah, I'd just rather go by Sunita. <clears throat> um, you know, my my dad being the, I don't know, like forward-thinking paranoid person that he was, thought that it would be good for us to have very Christian names as a first name. So both my brother and I have like first names that are very regular. Um, and it's funny that like this was a long, long time ago. And okay, this is really not on topic here. So let's just move on. Okay. Um, I'm not going to go into That sounds good. <laughs> All right, so um, so we are here today with Brian. Hello, Brian Bikey. Hello. <laughs> and we have a wonderful guest on the line as well, Alan Patrick McClure of Patrick Chocolate. How are the both of I you? Doing quite well. We are well. Yeah, it's been, you know, this whole podcast started with a weekly chat between Brian and I that was really chill. And we were pretty good about weekly at that point when we started. And now it's evolved into this third series of, oh, let's do interviews. And it turns out interviews are a lot more complicated because then we have three schedules. And Brian went ahead and had a third child, you know, in the meantime. And I've also been going through a lot of changes in my professional and personal life. And so suddenly our podcast has turned into a 
I don't think there is actually any rhythm to it. It's just a, a sporadic when we can pull it all together. So I'm delighted that we on try two, I think it is, have managed to get all three of us together recording and hopefully technology will serve us today. Absolutely. Um, yes. So the first interview was with Christy Leslie, as you know, Alan and Brian. And um, this one, I think, is also um, is it's sort of a, a swing to the other end of the spectrum. So we're talking to somebody who's been making chocolate now, um, formally selling it since 2006. Um, and I think that at this time, as the craft chocolate movement is booming and there's there's just so much interest and activity, I think it's interesting to go back to one of the earliest craft chocolate makers and get a sense of how you started and um, what brought you into, you know, what lured you into chocolate and then captured you, because that's kind of what happens to people. We get into chocolate and and then can't get out because we love it so much. And also it's so fascinating on so many levels. So Alan, I know that you started producing bars in 2006 formally, but prior to that, um, I'd love to hear sort of what captured your attention and even got you thinking about chocolate in this way and what you, how you sort of started experimenting and playing around and learning with, um, you know, learning how to roast and play with cacao and, and turn out delicious bars. Sure. So an easy question. (laughs) You know, it used to be the case that I would say, you know, one of the things that a lot of people say, which is, well, I've always loved chocolate. And, uh, you know, I think that's true. But as I thought about it more over the years, I realized that I was born essentially nine months after Valentine's Day. Um, And that's kind of interesting because Valentine's Day obviously is a huge chocolate holiday. I don't know if there's anything to that. You know, maybe, who knows? Who knows what was going on around that time? But uh, maybe it's just been in the cards for me from the very beginning that I was going to work with chocolate. What do you think about that, Sunita? (laughs) You know, I feel like I, you know, how you felt you didn't know me because you didn't know my first name was Anne. I feel like I, I thought we were better friends and that I would know this piece of information about you, this conception date. Mm-hmm. This is yeah. an important thing. It is. It is. Uh, I mean, it could have been like uh, St. Patrick's Day, for example, and then who knows what would have happened. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think to, to be a little bit more serious, although that was very serious, um, it really, I think, by and large, started for me because I ended up traveling to France in 2003 to spend some time with uh, the woman who became my wife a couple of years later, Vivian. And um, so I was there for almost a year and I had been into food and cooking and chocolate and things of that nature prior to that trip to France. But it it really opened my eyes to uh, a different way of approaching food, you know, a more sort of, I I hesitate to use the word serious, but I I think at the time that's how it seemed to me that it was, that everyone was just a little bit more serious about food or, or maybe a little bit more thoughtful about food. Um, Everyone from the, the food professionals themselves to sort of the everyday French person uh, doing their shopping at the supermarket. And uh, as I was there, I, I really just spent a lot of time soaking that 
the, the sort of food culture in and trying to understand it. And I was sort of, I was intrigued and moved by that thoughtful way of looking at food and beverages like wine. And when I came back, like I said, about a year later, it was something that I missed almost immediately. Uh, obviously, we have a pretty big uh, fast food culture here. And even though things have been moving beyond that, you know, you have a slow food movement and so on and so forth. At the time, it's not something I was really familiar with and uh, uh, not something that had really had an impact on my life here in the U.S., um, and so I, I think, to be honest, with cho- the chocolate um, sort of experiments that I was doing when I got back and the other food experiments that I was doing, in a way, I was kind of trying to recreate the, the way it felt to, to live and be with food in France uh, when I was there. And... Uh, and it's it's something that I've continued to do, you know, from that time forward uh, to the present day. So I don't know if that kind of gives you a general sense of. I mean, it's not really specifically only about chocolate, but but definitely, I would say there is a uh, it played a huge role in taking that step towards making chocolate professionally and taking it so seriously and thoughtfully. Yeah. And I think it's, it's worth interjecting or just adding here that um, to give people a sense who don't know, I mean, Alan um, is interested and engaged and experimenting all the time with every possible kind of food you could imagine. I remember you years ago asking me, cause I used to be a molecular biologist calling me and asking me about, you know, what kind of medium to use to support the, is it a bacteria that's used for making um, balsamic vinegar or is it a yeast? I think I don't really see that's how much I know about making <laughs> vinegar. Um, but you wanted to like source it and keep it alive and try to make balsamic vinegar. And so just playing around with so many different kinds of foods is it seems to me that it's your hobby. I mean, I, when I visited you years ago, you were working on curing a Berkshire hog part Um mm-hmm. You make hot dogs from scratch and even like the thing that totally blew me away that made me decide that I could just categorically say that anything, any food you could possibly imagine Alan has made from scratch was when we were out for dinner once for the fifth anniversary at a fancy restaurant. And um, these this guacamole came with these little chips that were they reminded me of the shrimp chips, you know, like the colorful pastel colored poofy shrimp chips. I think that's what you call them. Right, Alan? Yeah. Yeah, the kind of uh, right. I, I don't know if they're Chinese or Southeast Asian or, or or what it is, but you can kind of get them at let's say Pan Asian markets, um, and I think they just call them shrimp chips in in English. Yeah, yeah, and so they're this fun little snack, and it so happened that the guac got served with something of that kind, and I was saying something about them, how they reminded me of of this kind of chip, and Alan's like, "Oh yeah, I've made these," which is like, you know, I don't even know how many steps to, you know, process the shrimp that you could tell us because you've done it, um, where you make the, the little tube and then you dry it and then you slice it up and you deep fry it. And I mean, I don't think there's many normal human beings out there who are not full-time chefs who are like experimenting to that extent in terms of understanding how to make food. So, um, 
And whether this is related or not, recently, I think I saw you were inquiring about people's favorite hot sauces. Yes. Yeah. So I, so something about me, this is all true. What Sunita said uh, that I essentially, if I can, if I can experience a food or if I have experienced a food that I really enjoy um, and I can learn a little bit about how it's made and the process seems intriguing immediately. I want to do it myself. Um, and so, and to some extent, the more complex the process, the more I want to do it because I don't know why, actually, <laughs> I don't know why, but it's, uh, it's a fact. And so hot sauce is, is it's something that I've always liked. And what happened actually, um, is that over the Christmas break, so some, there are moments we'll probably talk about this a little bit later, but uh, I'll, I'll just interject this piece of information. I'm working on a uh, PhD in food science and it keeps me very busy thinking about my research. And, uh, and then obviously when I'm not doing that, I'm doing Patrick chocolate. So I haven't had as much time to do other types of food projects uh, lately except when I have a little bit of a break, like a Christmas break or a spring break. And it was this last Christmas break. I had a little bit of downtime. And at that particular moment, a friend of mine and also chocolate maker, uh, Colin Gasco from Rogue Chocolatier texted me to ask me if I've ever had, or if I had ever had uh, Louisiana, I think original Louisiana hot sauce because I think he hadn't had it and they, they found it up in Massachusetts and he was really excited about it. And I had, when I was a kid, um, and I had, had tried lots of hot sauces over the course of my life, but I thought, you know, I need to taste this again with, well, the palate of sort of a, uh, you know, a seasoned food professional, let's say, and a uh, scientist in training. And I tasted it and immediately I thought, yeah, this is amazing hot sauce. And it's, it's crazy because I think for, you know, a decent sized bottle, it's like a dollar 99 <laughs> and you sort of, you just go, how <laughs> can a company make something that has an incredible complex, fruity, hot, uh, flavor and sell it for a dollar ninety nine, like in an actual glass bottle and everything. Um, and I just sort of went down the hot sauce rabbit hole after that, uh, and I have not come back out yet. So this this season, I will be growing. I think it is like forty different varieties of chilies in my garden. Of course, I've already started. I don't know how many, um, and I've been reading as much as I can, including uh, Marisol Presia's book on uh, I think it's called peppers of the Americas so mm -hmm. I apologize if I got that name wrong but it's a great book there's some other books uh, by Dave DeWitt uh, also great books just anything I can find uh, online as well although there's not nearly as much information useful information as you might expect online but yeah hot sauce is incredible the chili pepper or chili peppers, the various species and varieties are all incredible things. And then the different ways that you can uh, transform 
those raw ingredients into finished hot sauces that are, you know, aside from the fact that they have heat, are completely different from each other. Uh, that also amazes me. So, yeah. It's an interesting um, place to sort of segue back to chocolate to ask, because, you know, you're, you're working on these hot sauces, you're, you're sourcing all of these seeds to grow different hot chilies in your garden this summer. Um, because that's of course what you do when you go down a rabbit hole and you're Alan McClure. Um, but just to get a sense, like how did you approach when you got captivated by chocolate? And I think my understanding is that there's some early, a lot of the early craft chocolate makers kind of had their minds and taste buds opened up when they tasted a Scharfenberger bar and realized, cause that was like the first sort of interesting dark chocolate with few ingredients um, that was going on back then. It kind of opened your mind to the possibility of, of, of interesting flavors in chocolate beyond what we were used to in the U S. Um, but what was the, what did you, how did you approach it? Because you just made a comment as well. Like there's not as much information that's useful online as you might imagine. I think that's an interesting point. You know, you, we, in this day and age, you do a few Google searches and you feel like you kind of know things. Um, but how did you approach chocolate? What did you go into and read? And we can actually link to, um, I know the early books that you've referenced before and I've posted them, um, through, you know, through my work as well as, as reference books for folks, but just to get a sense of how you approached it. Um, so people understand the kind of technical knowledge you tried to acquire in theory before actually making chocolate. Right. So for me, I was not familiar with Scharfenberger until after France. So uh, the the first brands with which, you know, the, the fine chocolate brands with which I gained some familiarity were French brands. And Valrona was definitely sort of top of the heap in my mind by the time I left France. Um, mm -hmm. But also... Um, uh, Bernachon in Lyon, which is essentially where I was. I was in Beaujolais in Lyon uh, commuting back and forth because I was taking some classes in order to stay in the country a little bit longer. And uh, so when I got back to the United States, those are the brands that had definitely made the greatest impact on me. Um, and, and I would probably still say Valrona um, at the very top. But when I got back, I started to think, well, maybe there's some great chocolate being made in the United States or elsewhere. And I found uh, back then Martin Christie's site. It was still young, but it existed. And there were, uh, it's called 70percent.com. And they had a lot of reviews of bars from Amade, mm -hmm. Demori, Valrona, and uh, the list goes on and on. And so what I did is I just uh, looked for the bars that had the best reviews and looked at what makers those were. And, you know, there was Pralu and Bonat and, uh, again, Barona, Amade, the Mori, trying to remember. Mm, those are probably the main companies at that time. I mean, even worldwide, you didn't have a huge selection. Uh, you had Mich Michel Cuisel also. Yeah, I was going to mention Cuisel, yeah. Um, but I, I had not come across Cuisel in France for some reason. Um, so what I did is I just ordered a lot of that chocolate. And that's something that I think is very important and that people aren't doing enough of. So I do a little bit of consulting 
now uh, a little bit of consulting for R&D, some business questions, though I just discourage that because businesses, chocolate businesses can be so different in different parts of the country. Um, but uh, what I would say is that people aren't tasting, the people I'm talking to, for the most part, aren't tasting nearly as much chocolate as they should be tasting. Mm -hmm. And that was really the first thing that I did, both in France and when I got back, was to, and I didn't look at it as chocolate tasting. I was just like, I want to eat a bunch of good chocolate. You know, I want to, I want to find the best chocolate I can and eat it because good chocolate's delicious. And as I did that, uh, I just wanted to understand of the bars that I liked best, why did I like them best? Was it the origin? Was it the manufacturer? Was it the uh, cacao content, um, et cetera? And so I took notes. Um, and I think uh, before that, I had not really taken notes when tasting food. So why did I start doing that? I don't, I don't know if it was the influence of 70%.com and how they had done reviews. Or, you know, it could be that I was paying so much money for these bars that I wanted to get the most out of them and make sure that I would buy pretty much only chocolate that I liked in the future, or that was the idea. Maybe a combination of the two. But what taking those notes did is it helped me to be more analytical about chocolate. And so it wasn't just about whether I liked something, um, I really started to understand those details and, you know, the particle size and um, melt and things like that. And I didn't really know why they were like they were at the time, but I started to figure out what I liked. And it's, it's something I wish people would do more of now because, you know, when someone has a problem and they say, well, you know, my chocolate's not tasting that great and I want to know how to make it better. And I, I want to figure out, well, what's better in their mind? What, what is their goal? And when they haven't tasted much chocolate, that makes that really hard because really all they're saying to me is, I don't like the taste of this thing. Help me make it better. And I know what I like personally, but if I don't know what they like or what their goal is for the market, that's really a tough thing for me to do as a, as a consultant. Um, so this is my message for aspiring chocolate makers. Taste a lot of chocolate, like hundreds and thousands of dollars worth of chocolate. Um, that's no exaggeration. And, and keep doing it forever. You know, don't, don't stop. Don't feel like you've gotten to the point where you know everything because most certainly you don't um, because I don't. And, and no, no chocolate maker that I respect would ever say that they know everything at this point. There's always more to learn. So um, I don't know if, if that was a little bit of a, a digression, you know, getting back to your question where you brought up uh, Scharfenberger, I was just trying to make the point, I think, that I wasn't familiar with Scharfenberger yet. And so my, my experiences with tasting chocolate, getting started, all came from these European companies, uh, fine chocolate companies. Um, 
where would you like me to go next? Again, sorry if there's no, a little think, bit of a digression. No, that's great. I mean, that's that's what we specialize in here at Unwrapped um, is going in different directions. But I think that that's a really important point that you made. And I think that, you know, Valrona is still relevant. Um, Bona, Amade, um, you know, all of these companies are still relevant. They've changed over the years. Demori, um, Demori being one of the rare two ingredient uh, makers in, in, well, at least traditional makers in Europe. Um, and so tasting them and understanding what's going on, I, I agree. I think that's really important. And I like that you emphasize that. Um, so where I would go next, one of the things I think is important, because I think that most folks who know Patrick Chocolate now know you maybe more for your inclusion bars than for your single origins, because there are more inclusion bars than single origins at this time. But when you started, um, you were doing two ingredient bars as well. You were doing just cacao and sugar. And originally you had just, you were just working with one bean. And it's interesting because obviously the, the, the scene right now is that there's so much more cacao available than when you started way back when. Um, but at the time, basically you were studying in a sense, the Madag- the bean from Madagascar that was from Bertil Akason. And you had a 67, a 70, a 75, and one with nibs, right? You had basically four different versions of the same bean and they weren't just all roasted the same way and turned into chocolate. They were sort of optimized for that amount of sugar and what you were trying to show in the bean. Is that correct? Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I'll talk about that a little bit. Um, yeah, the, the first four bars that I released were all Madagascar. And so this, this is interesting because uh, it tells you a little bit about my lack of understanding of the chocolate market at the time, because I was approaching making chocolate as uh, a lover of fine chocolate that, that I had become. And so I thought, okay, you know, I had that kind of like build it and they will come mentality, which essentially almost never works. I've learned, unfortunately, but that's, that's what I was trying to do. I, I just thought like, well, if I can learn, if I can understand what great chocolate is and I can learn how to make great chocolate and then make great chocolate that's interesting to me, then that will be good enough. And so those first four bars, if you keep that in mind, it makes a lot of sense um, because I had found this origin that I found to be uh, to ha- to be very complex uh, interesting, uh, different, but also delicious. So different than what most people are used to, but again, also delicious and not just different for the sake of being different. And then I had, uh, over time, over a couple of years, I guess, figured out ways to turn that into four different bars, which in my mind showed different aspects, different facets of that bean. And yeah, I used, at the time, with all but one of them, um, it was just two ingredients, cane sugar and cacao, and different roast profiles. And then obviously the inevitable, or it became the inevitable, I think I just called it 70% with nibs at first. It's a very creative name. Um, <laughs> it, that had, it, was a, it was the 70% Madagascar with cocoa nibs on it. And... Uh, yeah, that's that's the way that I was approaching it. And I didn't feel at the time that it was necessary to work with 20 different origins 
um, because I thought, well, there's so much that can be done with one excellent origin. Why should I force myself to buy cacao that's not quite as good um, just to do another origin? And, and really, I have stuck with that, um, except, so I guess I would say instead of buying a bunch of origins like some companies uh, might do, uh, you know, I just let the market tell me, okay, four Madagascars is too much. We don't understand the difference. Or even if we understand the way that you explain it, we can't explain it to our customers as retailers that well because we don't have enough time. So therefore, we don't want to order all of them. So, um, so that complicates things. And on top of that, people don't just want single origin bars, even if that's all that you make right now. So, so that those two things that I began to understand fairly well is I was dealing with retailers more and more and not just selling everything online caused me to shift in the direction of doing inclusion bars essentially and uh, eventually dropping one of the Madagascars as well. Yes. And the, the, I guess the next origin you brought in that I remember that I really loved and that you think you did a wonderful job with, even though you found the cacao sometimes a little bit, um, you know, in, let's call it interesting in ways that you didn't find interesting, um, but you managed to sort of smooth out those sort of um, odd flavors was the Rio Caribe from Venezuela. That was your second origin that you brought in, correct? Yes, that was the fifth bar that I released. So it was sort of the, the odd one out in my product line for a while when everything else was Madagascar. And then came the bar that Brian is so excited about still to this day. Um, the PBJ OMG, wasn't that your first inclusion bar that you pulled off so brilliantly? Yes, it was incredibly brilliantly the way that I pulled that (laughs) off. Um, (laughs) No. So, so yeah, what happened was I did the four Madagascars, I did the Rio Caribe and then I had, the advice of uh, it, it was the former sales manager or head of sales. I apologize to her if I got her title wrong um, for Amade USA, Gaylene Quinn after Amade USA ceased to exist. And I don't know the reason for that. Um, she had given me some advice on expanding the product line when I was finally receptive to hearing that advice. (laughs) And she said, you need some milk chocolate. Don't just focus on single origin bars and like seriously consider inclusions. And so I took all that advice to heart and worked over the course of maybe a year and a half, maybe more hard to recall on, I think it was one, two, three, four, five or six different bars. So almost doubled the product line and everything was released. If not all at once, all the new bars, then one right after the other uh, in pretty swift succession. So that would have been 
the 70% signature blend, what I called at the time the signature dark milk, which is now just dark milk, the mocha OMG, cappuccino OMG, which, mm-hmm. funny enough, Jesse from Cacao in Portland pointed out to me recently that essentially this has become a big craze now to do these uh, white, what are essentially white chocolates uh, flavored with, you know, whether it's uh, coffee or mango or any number of different things. It's my current obsession. Yeah. I think I saw that on Twitter recently or Instagram. Um, Jesse pointed out to me that I might've been, if not the first, first, Mm -hmm. like perhaps the first bean to bar maker to do a bar like that. And the, the irony is that I don't even make that bar anymore because at the time, keep in mind, this was eight years ago or seven, seven or eight years ago when this was released, people didn't buy it. <laughs> people didn't really want it because it was a white chocolate. And they were saying, we don't want white chocolate. We want dark chocolate and like maybe some milk chocolate, but white chocolate is like not good quality. Um, it had nothing to do as far as I know with the flavor, it was just like, it didn't fit in with what the market wanted at the time. And so it's funny to me that now that's completely changed. But anyway, so to, to continue, so the mocha, the cappuccino and the PBJ that you brought up. So all of those were all released. And I don't know if the mint also, or if that was later, I can't remember, but it was soon thereafter at least. Um, and so, yeah, that was just a huge, it seemed to people, I know, like a huge, huge change. And some of the retailers who had been selling the single origin bars prior to that, I think didn't understand at all what I was doing and thought like, well, he's losing his mind or, you know, (laughs) he's, uh, uh, completely sort of going back on what he said was important to him, which I can understand how they might see it that way at the time. But I think those who have stuck around realized or have realized why I did what I did and that it actually makes a lot of sense. And that the thread that ties everything together is uh, flavor, which is really always what my focus is flavor and texture, but But first and foremost, when I'm working on a bar, I'm always just trying to create something that tastes delicious. And with all of those bars, that's what I was doing, despite the fact that I had ceased to do single origin um, for that next batch or it, because obviously I did some single origin after that. um, And I had ceased to do two ingredient chocolate at that point. And that was because I decided that I actually didn't like the texture as much as I did with a little bit of added cocoa butter. So that was just a stylistic change based upon, well, I don't want to say just, but it was certainly a stylistic change based upon what I decided that I liked. And it it did turn out that it's easier to mold bars when you add a little cocoa butter too, which is important if your job requires you to mold chocolate bars for a living. (laughs) <laughs> right. And you also at that point had changed to a different, uh, a thinner, larger bar. Um, and I imagine that that would have been also critical to be able to have something that was a little less viscous. 
Yeah, that's a good point. It was a thinner bar, uh, took a little more space on the shelf. And that was because people were constantly complaining that my bar was too small and dark on the shelf and didn't stand out. So it didn't sell well. So that's, that was one of my, and I think many chocolate makers have had to deal with this issue of packaging where again, if you're taking this, um, if you build it, they will come approach that I took. I, I thought that it was the chocolate inside the package. Mm -hmm. And apparently most people thought it was the package itself. Mm -hmm. And, and when I say most people, I don't, I don't necessarily mean that obviously people are just buying based upon packaging, but it is true if they've never tasted your chocolate before and it's a little expensive, uh, or at least certainly more expensive than what they've been used to. If the packaging is not calling out to them, there's little chance unless someone, you know, stuffs a piece of it in their mouth that uh that they're gonna buy it as the way it is so you need to draw their attention in with the packaging and i wish i really really wish that this was not the case that somehow uh packaging did not play a role in being a successful chocolate you know craft chocolate company but it's incredibly important so yeah absolutely and i think that you know part of the reason that your bars did so well at the chocolate garage is because we actually do stuff chocolate in people's mouths or we at least, at least invite them to sit mm -hmm. and taste whatever it is that we have. And so I think that, you know, as you've gone through your iterations of packaging and, you know, some, you know, and, and made some bold decisions and really, I know, tried very hard to be receptive to feedback from folks and to um, ideas and suggestions of what your package should look like. Um, I think that at the chocolate garage, people always actually bought for what was inside and not for the exterior of the package because they were able to taste it. And when you taste Patrick chocolate, you know, back to the genius of like the PBJ bar, because we didn't really touch on what I think was so genius about it was that it, it's literally just the J is the cacao, the fruity, jammy, delicious Madagascan cacao. And the PB is obviously the peanut butter, right? But it was basically this, just this really beautifully simple and yet absolutely delicious, um, very like quintessential American sort of food combo. Um, and, and so a very base food combo, I would say, you know, like we don't really think of PBJ as this like exquisite, like, you know, uh, or no fancy sort of meal, but you did such a brilliant job to, to pull that together in such a seemingly simple way, but I'm sure not simple at all. Um, anyway, so yes, I, I think that the problem with the reality is that people buy with their emotions um, and and based on packaging primarily because they don't have an opportunity to really take the category and taste the insides and decide what's really delicious. So, well, and just marketing is just so visual these days. I mean, it's it's this is still super prevalent, and it's the it's one reason why every time I see a bar that is or or a brand that is in really striking packaging, that my first thought is generally hesitancy that it's going to be an inferior product um, just based on my experience that I've had with multiple current brands. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And without, without naming any names, I think, you know, a lot of people listening to the podcast are going to realize what some of those brands are, you know, that have gained a huge amount of the craft market share and it's based 
not solely necessarily, but uh, predominantly, I think, on the packaging. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, you know, I don't mind naming a name. I think that a great example and the earliest example of that was Mass Brothers just having such compelling, beautiful paper, um, such a simple design and, you know, and, and just sort of a style and a feel about them. And yet when you stripped away the packaging and actually tasted the bars, um, they were, you know, at, at best, very inconsistent. Um, texture was not really there. And oftentimes there were a lot of flavor defects too. And yet, um, you know, this the, the thing there, and this is a whole other topic, and I don't know that it makes sense to get into this, but, you know, you have a, a, a market that actually doesn't know good chocolate because there really hasn't been good chocolate in the U.S. up until very recently. Um, and so, you know, just intensity of flavor or just wild flavors or anything at all that you taste that goes on in your mouth um, when you're tasting chocolate was like is, is I think it still is kind of a novelty. And so people are just like, oh, my God, you know, like I didn't know chocolate could taste like this. And that's true. But it also it's OK also to then be like, and this is not actually delicious. It's like very unusual. And um, there's a lot going on here. But do I like it? I think that that's just not something partly because of what you're talking about, Alan, just a very different relationship with food in this country than, let's say, France, since that was what you were talking about earlier. And so that's, you know, one of the challenges is that there isn't a lot of discernment going on necessarily in general, unless people are really getting. And I think that's happening more where people are trying things, they're listening to what they're tasting and and then deciding whether that's something that they like or not. Yeah, it's good. It's a good, good movement or a good direction which to be moving. Yeah. So just as an example, one of the things that you just talked about, you know, the amount of time you spent sort of developing the doubling of your SKUs, you know, having all these other offerings in addition to just the plain single origins. I often tell this story to folks at the Chocolate Garage to sort of give them a sense of the kind of maker you are and also to just make, in general, any bars that they're buying, I try to give them a sense of, you know, who the maker is and what their process was. And I think the brown butter bar is a great example that sort of illustrates the kind of um, quest for perfection and desire to really create something that is not just okay, that is absolutely delicious, that you're passionate about. And I remember talking to you ages ago, you had started doing the research, which my memory was that you had started just tasting what was out there on the market. And then you had started, you know, playing around with test batches. And my memory is, correct me if I'm wrong, and maybe you don't remember this, I've repeated it probably more times than you know, um, you were doing two test batches a week for three and a half months once you had decided to like put your mind to making this bar and you were playing around with the brands of butter, how you were browning it, the different sugars, the blend of cacao. So I think that's a really interesting example. I'd love for you to speak to it a little bit about how you, you know, create a new bar and the amount of, you know, you don't have an idea, execute it and wrap it and put it out there, um, which and this gets into a whole other topic around inclusions and what's the point of inclusions. The point of inclusions is not to cover up flaws. It's to make something that's delicious. And yet I think most makers who are working with inclusions often um, end up perhaps because of flawed cacao and maybe also, um, you know, don't have the mastery around how to massage cacao beans the way a more skilled maker might. Um, often we use inclusions to to make an interesting bar rather than specifically choosing flavors and cacao to come together to be greater than just the sum of the parts. 
that's a, a whole heck of a big mouthful of a question, but why don't you speak on that for a little bit? <laughs> yeah. So I want to say it was 2010, um, cacao again in Portland had me and Colin from rogue chocolatier out to do an event. Um, they put a lot of time and money into it. And I think one day we were sampling out some of our chocolate before or after one of the events and, and maybe, yeah, uh, David Briggs from Chocolado de David stopped by and, uh, some of the listeners may be familiar with his bars. Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure. I don't think he's doing being a bar. If I'm wrong, apologies, but that wasn't really the point. The point was I tasted some of his bars and I think it was at that time I tasted a brown butter bar that he was doing. And I thought, wow, this is delicious. And I don't think I tasted one before that. I don't even know if there was another one on the market. I mean, that may have been the first, but, mm -hmm. um, I mean, essentially, it was rare for me to taste a chocolate bar from a company that inspired me to want to make something similar. That just didn't happen that often. Um, often, I would think, "Oh, this is like this is good," but I wonder, um, you know, I probably just want to try to make something different. That's my own thing, and this is is probably the first time where I thought, okay this this is so good and i want to do the same bar i just want to put my spin on it so that's what led to all those test batches and all the the different um ingredient or the formulation changes or tests and different types of ingredients different types of sugars and salt and types of salt and like you said butter ways of browning the butter when to add the butter and what some of that comes down to it, it's something that I wasn't i think i might have been intuitively aware of it but didn't realize there was an actual term for it and that is that you can have interactions uh with different ingredients that will give you flavors I mean, people use this expression like greater than the sum of its parts. People like me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and, and it's, it's, it's a real thing. I mean, it's a real, uh, statistical and science based fact that certain things when tasted independently, uh, will taste one way. And then when put together, taste different. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes. And sometimes that difference is, a, is better. And so I think the reason for all of those test batches, and I've, I've learned how to do uh, experimental design now, which is far more efficient than what I was doing back then, which was essentially changing, not just more efficient even now, but, but can give results that are impossible to obtain with the way I was doing it back then. But the way that I was doing it back then was I would change one thing, one element, one variable and nothing else and see how that compared to what I had done before. And then I would change one variable again and do that every time. 
And so, yeah, it took many, many months and many, many test batches until I finally came up with something that made me happy, which it, it turns out is, I think, our, our most popular bar now, um, more popular than any other bar. It actually replaced the PBJ in that regard. The PBJ was the most popular bar. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, and, you know, what we set on was a certain mix of cacao um, origins, certain type of sugar, brown sugar, dark brown sugar, sea salt, organic brown butter, and the butter has to be added at a very specific point in the chocolate making process because some of the flavor in that butter is is subtle. There's a lot of nuance there. It's delicate, and it can be lost very easily. Um, and then it's the hardest bar to mold that I have. I end up molding for every, let's say like 500 of those bars I mold or that I sell, I probably have to mold like 750 of them to get that 500. Mm. Um, whereas with the darker chocolates these days, it's pretty much a one-to-one ratio of, of molded to sold bars. So yeah, you can understand that for me to continue to make that bar, there must, there must be something special because it, gives me extra work to have to do that one. Yeah. Mm. Makes sense. I can't help but think because, you know, I, of course we sell the brown butter and um, we used to special order big batches of it because we, because it was so, so popular, but I think, and this sort of brings us to this other topic, which is one of the things that um, we did with you guys, with you guys. Um, that brings us to the topic too, of how your company has changed and how it grew. And then you went back down to a much smaller operation, which we'll touch on shortly. But um, one of the bars that we uh, found is like the most popular bar and probably the one that we've sold the most of of your bars is the one that you made for us that was the salty milk with the nibs on the back, um, which was basically the story behind that. It's called The Boss, and and I imagine some people are listening have had it, but um, I'd be curious to see how The Boss does. I hope you release it at some point. widely. Um, I know that it's a nib bar and kind of a pain, but the origin of that bar was that I was doing these tastings where everyone would get to take their favorite bar home. And I was using a Cluzel bar, Michel Cluzel bar that was called uh, Eclat de Caramel au Beurre Salé. And it was like, you know, bursts of salted caramel butter, salted butter caramel. Um, So there were chunks like that in the bar. And you know, this was early, early on at the chocolate garage, and I wasn't really super crazy about the ingredient list. And it was hard to figure out where the cacao was coming from. And I really wanted to make sure that it was what I call happy chocolate in terms of sourcing. And um, and it was just this no brainer bar that everybody loved and walked away with. And I was not satisfied with the, 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 the happy part of it. And so asked Alan if he could recreate something like that. And um, you worked on trying to make little bits of toffee and there's just like a complex, difficult bar and hard to get the toffee to stay, you know, the way it needed to on the back of a bar. Um, and eventually came up with this brilliant idea of the caramel within the chocolate, the notes of caramel within the chocolate and then nibs on the back for the crunch. Um, I think that bar, uh, well, it's obviously delicious. Brian, you've had that bar, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Such a short answer. Um, <laughs> 
the, I think that bar um, would would do really, really well. I hope you're going to release that eventually, Alan. Are you? Yes. Good. You guys Such are- a short answer. <laughs> I know. <laughs> how I roll like pulling teeth. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like all your previous answers have been short too. Um, so actually maybe this is a place to jump in, uh, to talking about how your business has evolved over time because it initially was, you know, just a one man show. And, um, eventually you started to grow and try to do those traditional things that, um, businesses do, um, and look at a broader distribution. And I remember the day you called me, I was actually, I feel like I was actually walking past Whole Foods when you called me up and, and said, look, Sunita, you know, you're not going to be happy about this, but I have to share some news with you. You know, I'm going to be um, putting three of my bars, I think it was, it was like the PBJ, Signature 70, and one of the Madagascars, I think. Um, you were going to be putting those, they were going to be distributed by Whole Foods, which is literally two blocks from the Chocolate Garage. So you're calling me to let me know that this was something that needed to happen for your business. Um, and I would love for you to talk a little bit about you know, how you got to that place and why it was something that made sense or made sense for some time and then didn't make sense anymore. Because I think that something that a lot of small makers are currently struggling with and trying to figure out, um, you know, how to grow their business, whether they should really scale and try to, you know, um, have a business that works based on like large volume and smaller margins. And then, you know, you've obviously ended up in a place now, partly because of school, partly because of other things where, um, you've actually gone back to very small scale, um, and much more expensive, but lower volume. Um, can you speak to that a little bit, like to share with folks what you learned and and then maybe why you've eventually ended up where you are currently while you're doing your PhD in food science. Sure. So the, the primary impetus to getting the bars into whole foods was I was just trying to figure out how do I mess with Sunita's uh, business overall? I was like, what's the largest <laughs> negative impact I can have on it? And that was an obvious choice. (laughs) And actually, you know what, when you, when you're done talking about this, I would actually, I was realizing in retrospect, as I thought about this call that I actually, you, that actually probably really pushed me in the direction of doing exclusives, which was a huge part of my business model. So thank you. And you failed to screw with my business. (laughs) Damn it. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's essentially, uh, I'll try to keep this short because I think it's, I, I think it can be. I think it's relatively simple. And that is, so I started off thinking I would sell everything online. And that was when I was developing the business in 2006 and 2007. It seemed like it was off to a good start. And I had heard from Steve DeVries, who had been selling his bars online, uh, DeVries Chocolate, starting, I think it was in November of 2006, that things were going well for him. And so I thought, okay this is this is perhaps doable and i can just make chocolate myself sell it online great that's what i want um and then that continued through the end of 2007 and into 2008 and i think i might have sold some bars to adam at Fox city news in san francisco but aside from that maybe one local retailer, but aside from that, I wasn't selling wholesale. I just planned to sell everything directly. Um, 
But then we had the housing bubble burst in the summer of 2008. And that combined with the stock market crash and I think it was October of 2008 meant that my online sales literally uh, dried up overnight. I mean, I went from every month I could count on an increase in online sales to I think that October 2008 release, I think I only sold five orders or something like that. And, and it was one of those... <laughs> It was one of the situations where you just immediately realize, oh, I need to change <laughs> everything that I'm doing or else I'm going to go out of business. That's what's happening right now. And so I started selling wholesale immediately and started doing sales, which I hadn't done prior to that. And that meant in order to bring in the same amount of uh, profit, because you know, for, for those who don't know, most people probably do, but when you sell wholesale, you're selling your product for less than when you're selling it direct. Uh, so, you know, just use an easy example. Maybe your, your profit is half of what it was. Um, if you're doing everything wholesale, um, might not be exactly the case depending on the situation, but then all of a sudden you have to make more bars uh, to make more bars, maybe you need more equipment, so then you need to spend more money, and then you can't also do everything yourself, so you need to hire employees. And so then that also starts eating into your profit margin. And so that's really where I ended up through, well, I will say no fault of my own, though, I mean, I was naive, obviously, about starting a business. But that was a huge, huge recession everyone's familiar with at this point. So if that hadn't happened, who knows what Patrick Chocolate would have been after, you know, three, four, five years. Um, but that kind of cycle of like, well, I need to bring in more money to become profitable. And to do that, I need more equipment and more employees. That just continued and continued. And it just never seemed like enough. I was never paying myself. So I was living off of uh, my wife Vivian's salary. She was a teacher. So you can imagine uh, we're not, you know, rolling in cash. And, you know, I just felt like I was trapped uh, that no matter what I did, it was never quite enough, even though our sales kept increasing. Um, and as I continued to sell wholesale, eventually I realized that was not going to be fast enough. I probably needed to start dealing with distributors and that's how Whole Foods ended up carrying some of our bars because of a distributor I was dealing with in um, Northern California specialty food distributor. And, uh, and ultimately it never worked out. I mean, it never worked out for us. Uh, and so what happened is after, what does that mean? What do you mean by it didn't work out? Like it being profitable, like we, you know, we're chasing profitability and never won the, the race, <laughs> you know, it, it always pro profitability got away from us, you know, between 2006 and 2000. 12, 2013, whatever it was, we were not profitable. And mm -hmm. I was starting to pay myself a little bit, 
but not what I should have been paying myself by that point. And, uh, there was so much stress and so much anxiety and, you know, fear of going out of business that that's sort of, that was the breaking point where I, I just realized I have to do something different than what I've been doing for six, seven years now. And that's why I decided to go back to school. Uh, I thought, this is something that I can enjoy doing. It will be a challenge, but a totally different challenge. And we can price things at Patrick Chocolate such that, in other words, in a more uh, increased prices, such that we will only have to make less chocolate. We can sell, still have to do wholesale, but sell, uh, get rid of the distributors and sell directly to retailers and then keep pushing online sales. And if we're lucky, this will work and I can do my degree. And then, uh, you know, Patrick chocolate will still exist afterwards. And if it doesn't work, well, it looks like it wasn't working anyway. So might as well make a drastic change and cross our fingers. Um, because it just, it wasn't sustainable in any way. Like, wasn't sustainable financially or emotionally or in any other way uh, before I went back to school. So that's sort of from the beginning until right now, that's what happened. And I will say that luckily, you know, I had to raise prices twice, first time and then another time to get things to where uh, there was some balance so I could, you know, pay myself a salary and pay Vivian who's now working for me full time or working with me, I should say. Hey, 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 the truth slips out. Yeah. Full time <laughs> to, to pay her obviously a reasonable wage and to pay for health insurance. And, and these are all things that I was providing for employees before too, by the way, health insurance and mm-hmm. uh, paid vacation and so on and so forth. Um, but to do all this, I had to raise prices a little bit more. Uh, second time but now we're not losing money and you know we can pay our business bills and personal bills and it feels sustainable it it you know we still invested so much money in the business that as of now i'm not sure if we'll get that back um in the long run or not but at least at the moment you know, for the last few years, since 2014, I guess, it has it has been sustainable. It's a sustainable business. And the scale is much, much smaller. And yes, the bars are more expensive. But it's allowing us to continue to exist as a business. And so the other option was, okay, we don't exist anymore. Which I would like to think, you know, wishful thinking maybe is bad for everyone, not just us. I remember thinking it was very, very bad and unacceptable, unacceptable outcome. So I want to dig in a little bit because I think it's interesting to look at numbers. Um, I was recently just looking at this, you know, uh, a spreadsheet that actually we had worked on a long time ago, Alan. In 2013, I think we'd looked at like um, wholesale prices um, online and like retail prices across all these different bars and um, per gram prices. And I was looking at that recently to compare, you know, when I started in 2010, I think your bars were 
$3 wholesale is my is my memory and they were going for like 6 or 7 retail. Um and then uh when you did make a price increase just to make it clear to folks who are listening like I remember um you know makers would sort of in you would sort of like really wonder whether it would be acceptable to raise the wholesale price by 50 cents or 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 maybe um maybe a dollar. That's a lot to raise your your prices by, right? And so at yeah, the time when, huge. yeah, and it was, it was really actually, <laughs> I don't know if it's appropriate to tell this story. Maybe we try telling it and decide whether we want to remove it. But remember when you were really mad at me because I, I was like trying to pressure you and push you to like increase your prices because I felt like it was totally doable, at least through the chocolate garage. And, um, and so then I just decided to, um, just sell things for more to like kind of show you, <laughs> do you remember this? I, I don't remember being really mad, maybe irritated, maybe. Um, I do remember you trying to convince me to raise prices. I do remember that. And I vaguely remember it, that that's the funny thing. Like so much of this stuff seems like it was so long ago at this point. It's hard for me to remember the details, even though it wasn't that long ago. That's how owning a business can age you people, by the way. Um, <laughs> But anyway, so continues to need <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I think that it's always easier from the outside to look at someone else's work and feel like they're undervaluing or, not, you know, they could be charging more. And that's the same for me. I've had people who tell me you need to charge more for your tastings. And it's very hard personally to do it because I don't know. It's just how things go, I think, for a lot of people. And so I had been pushing on you to like increase your prices and encourage you because I could see how much people loved your chocolate and that they would pay more for it and it merited being more expensive. And so at some point I had taken an exclusive and just decided to sell it for more because I felt like I wasn't getting anywhere in terms of price increase. And that rings a bell, yeah. Yeah. And then you were kind of and you only told me this well after you'd been over being upset with me, um, which is maybe appropriate. Um, that, that, uh, that you'd been annoyed by that and kind of like, see, this is the thing that this is a topic for a whole other podcast is, you know, the role of the retailer and it's very easy. And I see people do this a lot in chocolate. That's where I pay the most attention is like, oh, the retailer's taking the biggest cut. Well, I get it. I get that that's physically like, or realistically what happens in terms of like where the prices increases occur and, and the last doubling of price, which typically happens somewhat throughout the supply chain the last one is the biggest because it's the most expensive when it leaves the factory as a wholesale product a finished value-added product but um even with the the model i mean i look at my peers in the industry you know no one's doing really well i mean the chocolate garage is actually finally closing after being extremely stubborn for many years and trying to really create something different um, that that could work and that could be really lean. So the idea that retailers um, are the ones who are capturing all the value and just skimming, I, I beg to differ on that. I think that the work that some retailers do is actually really important and, and hard. And it's not like I paid myself for the first five years either um, of the chocolate garage or for the last <laughs> year or two. Anyway, so where was I going with that? I got kind of carried away. Oh, that finally, um, you did increase your prices here and there a little bit. And then when it came to that crunch point where you were like, you know, how do we make this work? And this is not sustainable. And it's been many years and it's time for this to make sense. You went from, I think it was 
$5 wholesale at that point. And you realized, um, and we had talked about this a lot, like that for you to make this work realistically part-time, you needed to increase your wholesale price from five to seven, I think it was, or maybe four fifty to seven, which is a tremendous increase, right? Um, for any maker. So it was a radical shift in your model to go back down from having like 15 to 20 SKUs available at any time, online sales all the time, to changing it to three bars a month, four bars a month, depending. And um, they're available in this very sort of organized way that allows you to be really efficient. Um, it was a big departure and and very stressful to to entertain, right? But I guess when you're backed into a corner and it's like, well, it's this or nothing, you might as well try this because if this works, then it's better than nothing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm not 100% certain, but I think what it was is we, we went from 450 to $6 in one jump. That was that mm-hmm. first one when I first went back to school. So that was a huge, huge increase uh, for people when we had just been doing, like you said, 25 or 50 cent increases for the life of the business uh, over time. And then I made another increase maybe the following year of a dollar wholesale per bar. So yeah, that, uh, that then ended up being seven. So that was the last increase. And I haven't done any since then because I haven't had a need to. There are times where I think if I were just trying to be a smart business person, I probably should. But there are a couple of reasons why I don't. One is I sort of like it's working and I sort of just want to get my degree and be done with that before I make any changes that could alter uh, the fact that it's working potentially. And the other thing is I have such shell shock from that last recession. Any business owners who started their businesses after the recession have no idea what it's like to start before and, and to see how the market was back then. And then to have to go through an unexpected, terrible recession, you know, great recession. It really makes you doubt so many decisions that you probably wouldn't doubt otherwise, because what if there's another recession, right? I mean, that, that, that will never leave your mind. Uh, what if there's another recession? Like, aren't there signals out there right now? Aren't, you know, sales slowing for some retailers? Doesn't that mean there might be another recession and people just can't see it yet? I mean, it, it, we shouldn't forget that that housing bubble, I think economists had been talking about it for quite some time, but it was not common knowledge that it existed until just a handful of months before the stock market crash. Um, to, for most people, for most business owners and just the average person on the street. So that's also why I listen to a lot of financial podcasts now, because I figure like if, if someone's going to catch this early, they're going to catch it, and then maybe I can catch it too. But uh, yeah, there's a certain amount of paranoia. Maybe it's valid. Maybe not. I don't know. Hard to say. That keeps me from wanting to make any changes anymore 
until I'm done with my degree. Uh, it's kind of where I'm at. Yeah, actually, it'd be interesting, I think, and Brian, jump in if you think there's other stuff that's interesting. Um, it'd be interesting to talk about what your weeks look like now, because we're on spring break right now for you, which is why we're able to talk, because otherwise it's seven days a week um, between jamming out, not jamming out in a sloppy way, but just like cranking out delicious chocolate and studying and going to class and work in the lab, all that kind of stuff. It'd be interesting to get a sense of what that looks like for you. And so the idea of making a change or designing a new bar, like it takes a tremendous amount of thought and preparation, which right now I could imagine you don't know where you would squeeze it in. Yeah. I prefer to kick the bars out by the way. I kick them out. Drop kick. Get on out of here. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're right. I have a seven day a week schedule. So it's Monday through Friday on campus with classes and in the lab doing research Saturday and Sunday full time, uh, at the factory, Patrick chocolate workshop, I like to call it. And then two, well, two out of the four Mondays of the month, I'm also here doing shipping. So it, it sort of vacillates between two and three days a week for Patrick chocolate. Um, but those are full days. And then of course the days when I'm in the lab, there are also important emails that come in and orders that I have to place, uh, or, uh, people I need to, um, reach out to for some reason, uh, phone calls I have to make or meetings I have to have sometimes, but these are things that I only do when it's absolutely required because essentially I already have a full day and I'm already doing homework when I get home. So unless it's, it's required, it's tough. And I try to put all Patrick chocolate business on the weekend. But again, that those weekend days are also full. So it's good uh, to have spring break and these breaks like this, because then, I mean, technically I, I'm still working, but it's the, the work is not as dense as it is normally. Um, and the other thing is on campus, I don't fully control my own schedule. Whereas with Patrick chocolate, I can a little bit more. Um, but you know, I have classes where I have to be there at specific times and I have assignments that are due on specific days and exams and, uh, grants that I'm writing that are, that have deadlines. So it's, it's a little bit different than running your own business in that regard. Is Vivian, um, full-time during the week? She's full-time. She, so we always mold bars together. Um, that's the one thing that we're always doing together. But aside from that, I would say, trying to think, I mean, I do all the financial stuff and, you know, when it comes to entering and paying bills and dealing with the bank and the CPA and all that, I do all the ordering. Um, I... Uh, handle the orders, the online orders, and then we pack them together. Um, but entering orders and things of that nature. Um, but aside from those things, I would say, I mean, it's pretty much Vivian. So yeah, she's definitely full time. No question about that. And as a contrast, when you were at your peak in terms of producing 
many different bars um, every month and having lots of inventory, you had four or five people that were working with you? Yes. And I hasten to add, I do all the R&D still. I, I don't know. I forgot that. But like all the new, <laughs> all the new, I, I don't just go like, hey, Vivian, create us a new bar. Um, I still, <laughs> I'm, I'm still in the little time I have. That is, that's, you know, perhaps my most important uh, uh, sort of job at Patrick Chocolate. Um, but to answer your question, yeah, I went from it was just me to I had a couple of part-time employees. And then at the largest I had, it was... including myself, five full-time, and then another three or four part-time. And then also mm -hmm. I would pay reps to do certain things, to do demos, both here in Columbia and in California and uh, all around the country, really. So... To me, if it, I wouldn't say it felt large, but it definitely felt very different than it feels now. And part of it, maybe most of it, I mean, there are fewer moving parts now because there are fewer people, but, uh, you know, Vivian, I mean, we're married and... <laughs> She loves me, so obviously she's she's never going to do something intentionally to disappoint me. That's huge. I mean, it's just not going to happen. So you can't necessarily say that about, like, part-time employees sometimes. I mean, they have, other, they have other things in their life that are sometimes more important than their part-time position at the local chocolate factory. So... Um, that's one of the things that I've found made it tough to, to have employees. Sure. I mean, that's the thing about being invested in your business is that you do everything and anything and think about it all the time and are deeply invested in making it work. What else should we talk about, Ryan? Uh, I had, I had one, com these, these are two different questions, but they, they may be similar. One of them was, um, was kind of off a, something that you were saying earlier, Alan, but um, I was just curious about over the years what what other bars you have tried that have inspired you, maybe just inspired you, but also maybe that has inspired another bar. Based on the comment that you had mentioned that made you go back and try and you know you tried in regards to the brown butter, right? Yeah. Um, and then the second question again, you can answer either or or together. But the other one was kind of what I had mentioned uh, maybe a month or so ago online, asking you what your favorite bar that you make is, and also if you have a favorite bar that you do not make that another maker has made. How did I dodge that question, by the way? You just said, sounds like a good podcast question. Oh, I threw my, <laughs> I threw my future self under the bus, apparently. <laughs> uh, thanks, Alan. Um, so... <laughs> Okay. Well, I'll answer the first question really quickly and then get to the second question, which is probably a little more meaty. So the first question, what other bar bars, 
a little bit like the brown butter bar might have caused me to want to make something similar when that doesn't tend to be the way that I have normally approached making a new bar. I would say Domori Latte Sal, I think is what it's called. I think it still exists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to me, uh, when I was working on the chocolate for the boss that had the caramel uh, uh, toffee notes to it, the milk chocolate uh, that was a little salty, that is kind of the bar that led the way. I wanted something that was going to be, I mean, basically the way I approached it is I said, this bar is delicious. I want to make something even more delicious. I mean, just to put it simply. So that's what I tried to do. Um, And that I think was the, I don't know if it's still the only bar, but at the time it was the only bar I had tasted. There was milk chocolate, but it didn't just taste like milk, you know, like dairy, but it really had that nice caramel flavor to it. And I loved the salt in it. And this is something Sunita will know for sure um, or be very familiar with the idea that over time I have started adding a little bit more or a little salt and a little bit more salt to my bars and then like salt to everything. And then like lots of salt to things, lots of salt to things. I don't know why it's, it's just, uh, it's a stylistic preference. Um, I have just come to realize I love salt and chocolate together and not, it's not as simple as just saying like, Oh, I'm going to take the 70% Madagascar and put salt on it necessarily. Um, in fact, I, I didn't do that, but uh, for example, the 67% Madagascar, I think, hmm, Madagascar and salt, might that be good? Probably. How could I make it better than just uh, Madagascar and salt? What if the salt also tasted like habanero peppers? Would that be delicious? And, you know, it just so happens there's a, a company that does flavored salt, sea salt, that is just two ingredient. It's just, you know, whatever it's flavored with and the salt. So they do a habanero sea salt. That's just habanero peppers and sea salt. And that combined with the 67 Madagascar. is genius. <laughs> so that's the, that's the sort of way I've approached it is like, okay, in what way, you know, salt's not just one thing. It's not just, I mean, it's another thing that I've learned, you know, it used to be the case when I was a kid, I cooked, uh, when I did cooking, I used iodized salt. I didn't know there was kosher salt or sea salt or different types of salts or flavored salts. And I've learned that over time. And so when I'm cooking at home and also when I'm formulating new bars, I don't just say, there's not just a spot for salt where I go, how much salt? I, you know, I think, does it need salt? If so, what type of salt? Is it going to be visible? Does it need to have a textural component? Is it, does it just need to bring salt or does it need to bring something else with the salt? I mean, there are many questions uh, that can lead you down different paths depending on the answer. And uh, so that latte sal was, I think, also not the first time I used salt because the PBJ, I think, was the first time. But it was one of the first times 
where I really was considering the salt heavily in my decision-making process of, of developing that bar. Another reason for tasting everyone's chocolate. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's, there's a very good chance that if I, I was not always tasting chocolate, because that was well into the creation of Patrick Chocolate when I tasted that bar, um, I never would have come across it. I never would have been inspired. I never would have made the boss. I mean, that's, it's, I don't think I've ever said it just like that, but I think that's true. And, and I will answer your second question, Brian, but I wanted to add a couple more points here. It's something that I think I've told Sunita that I tell everyone, but I want to put it on the record. And that is, there are three things uh, that you should do if you want to make chocolate for a living. And first of all, like probably consider another career first. That would be <laughs> probably the smartest option. Um, and I, it, it sounds like a joke. It's really not a joke so much that I'm saying this, but I'll leave it at that. I don't want to be uh, too negative here. Um, but I will say, if you are going to make chocolate or want to, there are three things you need to do. And the first one that I mentioned already is taste a ton of chocolate. The second is to read as much as you can, because if you recall earlier when I was talking about tasting all this chocolate, I said, uh, well, I didn't really understand why things tasted the way they were or why they had a certain texture at the time. I just knew um, what I was tasting and feeling in my mouth. Um, but as I read more, that's what helped me to figure all of that out. Uh, I read as much as I could in books, and I think you said you're going to post some links to those, Sunita. Um, some of these were suggested by Steve DeVries. Some of them I found just through references in those books. Um, then I used the university library and the, the, uh, the whatever it's called, the, the search system. Um, to find papers and other books. And I just read as much as I could, try to soak it all in and understand what I was tasting. And then the third thing that I did was just to do a lot of, I say just to do, but to do uh, a lot of experimentation. So lots of test batches. And if I had known more back then, I would have used better experimental design in doing those test batches, uh, which is something you can learn from statistics classes, people. So don't don't hate on statistics. Um, <laughs> but those are the those are the three things: taste a lot of chocolate, read a lot about chocolate, experiment a lot in making chocolate. If you do those three things, then I think, unless you have no sense of taste whatsoever, you can probably become a good chocolate maker over time. I and mean, it will take time, but. Uh, and you just have to keep your mind open to always learning more. There's always more to learn, always more to understand. Um, just never, never shut that down. But a lot of people are not doing these three things, aren't really doing any of the three things, unfortunately. But I think I really feel strongly that all three are important. So I just wanted to say that. Can I jump in for a sec? Yeah, yeah. Um. So years and years ago, so folks listening to the podcast who are into chocolate probably are familiar now with Arate Fine Chocolate down in Milpitas, soon relocating to Tennessee. Um, 
David and Leslie used to come into the chocolate garage a lot and bring in test batches and come taste different things. And, you know, um, and I said to David and Leslie that if I were ever going to make chocolate, which I never will, and I really feel very safe saying that on the record because I've felt and heard and experienced all the pain of the makers over the years and the difficulties involved. Um, but if I were, I would promptly trot over to Columbia, Columbia Missouri and um, and hopefully get accepted <laughs> to do some time with Alan and just learn through his consulting business um, how to, to, to understand making chocolate. And I had said that to David and Leslie and they took it to heart and went and David came and spent a weekend with you, Alan, as you know. And um, folks who've done that have just found that they've learned so much and saved so much time of experimentation and um, just the kind of experience that is just not on the internet that is not really available there that some of it is purely experience and other is you know having really studied the field so um, I think that I'll just leave it at that if I were to make chocolate that's the first place I would end up to to sort of study under Alan and I thank you very much for for saying that but I will uh, I will say also that I don't unfortunately have as much time as I would like mm -hmm. to do some of that consulting at this point, but it, it doesn't hurt to reach out if you are interested, but my, my free moments are few and far between sometimes. So, um, you know, might have to wait a little bit, but, uh, if you have patience, then, then that's good patience with chocolate. Um, so that's good. Uh, so yeah, to, but to answer your second question, Brian, about i think it was are there bars what was it do i have favorite bars or bars that i have if you have a favorite bar that that in your lineup or that has been in and or if you have a favorite bar that is from another maker mm -hmm. well so i will try to answer this question i'll try to give you an answer but i do want to say and I'm not trying to sidestep the question that I often do not have favorite things, meaning um, like I have, for example, take beer. I have like lots of beers that I really like. None of them are my favorite beer. Um, and I actually get, this is something about me that may help to explain why I do always want to be working on something new. Even when I love something, I don't typically want to eat it over and over again. Like even twice in a row is sometimes too much for me. Uh, I don't know why that is. I just get, I get burnt out really easily on the same thing. So I, I think I have mm, a friend who can just eat the same thing all week long. Like he'll make it on Sunday and eat it like two meals a day for six days straight. And I think by the second meal of the second day, I would be so completely over it. I would not want to eat it anymore. Um, and yet six months later, six months down the line, I can have it again and love it. Uh, so that's just sort of a weird thing about me. And so it does make it, that's the reason why it is actually harder for me to answer this question than maybe you and I might like, because I, I do like all the bars that we make and there aren't any of them that I can really say I eat more than any of the others.
Are there any that you, t- are there any, and we can, we can ignore the second part of that question then given that information, but I remember reading the newsletter in regards to the malted, the malt bar came coming out. Yeah. So in rest in peace, <laughs> rest in peace. I could only get, I only got one mm-hmm. of those and then I've tried to find it since and they're, they're all gone, which is fine. Um, so is there a bar then that you take the most pride in, whether it even be one that's that sold well or was delicious, but something that you, being somebody who likes to try and break down complexities and flavor and understand things, something that you take the most pride in of being something that you released or or mm. not released, you know? Right. I, I always hear the infamous Jenduya project was something uh, <laughs> in, the, in the undergrounds that was delicious. So, I mean... I mean, it, it could be that, or it could be red coconut curry, or or whatever, and then you know some sort of information about why or whatever. Mm, mm-hmm. mm. So tough. Uh, any bar I think of, I mean, I can think of reasons that make me proud of certain bars, but it's hard for me to feel like they are somehow like it that they would supplant everything else um i mean just all the bars you've just mentioned for example the the malted milk bar i mean that was hugely difficult to develop and it took basically a whole summer you know i mentioned i have a little more time over breaks took basically a whole summer and then destroyed some of my equipment so that I was only able to release it once and realized I could never make it again. And I was incredibly happy with the result. And I'm glad that I stuck with it to, to, to release that bar that one time. But, um, the, with that, I don't think, you know, comparing it to the red coconut curry that you brought up, you know, I sometimes forget all the details because they happened so long ago, but someone on Instagram, and apologies if that person is listening, just posted a photo uh, because I don't remember, um, you know, people aren't using their real names on Instagram a lot of the time. And so uh, often it takes me months or over a year to figure out who everyone is. It's like, oh, I know this person. Um, but this person posted a photo of the red coconut curry and was talking about how much they enjoyed it and why they enjoyed it. And it was, it was bringing me back to the creation of that bar and all the things that I was thinking of that are apparently still locked away up in my brain somewhere. Um, but I just don't think of on a regular basis, you know, the idea that there's ginger in there and lemongrass and you know a couple types of gingers i just looked up the full ingredients list just to double check my memory and so this person on instagram was mentioning the ginger and i was thinking oh i had ginger essential oil but uh, in this one i do use ginger essential oil which is why it slipped my mind in another bar but in this one, I use lime essential oil and lemongrass essential oil. But the ginger actually comes from, and it makes sense now that I think about it, uh, going back to 
if you want the flavor of something in a bar, you don't want to just say like, okay, lime, I'm using lime essential oil, done. You know, you want to say lime, okay. What kind of lime flavor? Is it like dried lime peel, fresh lime peel? Is it like lime juice? What does lime really mean when you say lime? And you really have to think about that because if you want to get the best results in a bar, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be super clear to you at the beginning what you're looking for, but the idea that there are multiple options, you know, sometimes countless options is important. And so if the flavor is not working out quite the way you would like, just think about, okay, what is it that's not working and try something new. And so when you look at the red coconut curry bar, and this is, I'm not saying anything that isn't already on the ingredients list. I mean, there's ginger sugar, so sugar flavored with ginger. There's smoked paprika. There are uh, arbol chili flakes and lime essential oil and lemongrass essential oil. And there's sea salt. And then you've got the crunchy coconut on the back and it's a dark chocolate. And all of these were conscious decisions that I made. I mean, I recall going after iteration after iteration using different coconuts until we stumbled upon this salty, sweet, crunchy, toasted coconut. And all those components were necessary. And as soon as I tasted it, that bar with that coconut, I was like, okay, that's it. This is it. It's the one. There's no question in my mind. And we had tried so many types of coconut and toasting our own. And it just, it wasn't right. There was, and rather than just say like, well, I've spent so much time already and it's pretty good. Just stuck with it until we hit the right ingredient. And that is also why there is a huge cemetery of chocolate bars that have never been released. Um, I hate to say, because I never quite found that right ingredient sometimes and it just wasn't good enough for me you know which is always how i look at things is this as delicious as it could be would i want to eat it and if the answer is no to both of those then i just don't want to make it just doesn't feel good feels i don't know feels icky somehow so yeah so i was just in closing i was going to say to, to, to try to answer this question of Brian's man when I think about all of these bars I mean they're so they're just so personal they're so personal each and every one of them it's a product but it's it's sort of like each one man it sounds so just cliched I hesitate to say it <laughs> but but it's true like it's each one is a little part of the way that I see the world. You know, it's the, the way that I see and appreciate the world. It would not have come into being if not for something in my head somewhere, you know, for better or worse. And so, yeah, it's really hard for me to dissociate that from the bars and to pick one over another because it feels like, saying like, well, yeah, there's a little part of me that's not quite as interesting or something like that. Um, so feel free to ask a follow-up, I think. <laughs> I think that's what I'm sticking with. <laughs>
No, I, I love I think it. That sounds great. Mm-hmm. I think that's actually a good place to end because it, it it's a perfect wrap up of of um, of the body of work uh, that is uh, Patrick Chocolate. Okay, so. I mean, you still got me here. So is there anything else that you had in mind that you thought was very important? You really wanted to ask me and you just forgot. And I don't want to get off until you remember that. Or did you think you hit all that? Let's do it. Let's do a quick uh, magic wand exercise. With, with trying to let go of any apparent obstacles that there might be, let them, you know, financial, whatever, just any obstacle that you could imagine. Um, if you could just wave your magic wand and sort of like imagine where, you know, you have your PhD in food science, you're back to making chocolate full time and maybe some consulting or supplemental, you know, something on the side. Um, where where do you see Patrick chocolate? Where what would you be making? And would it be would you be making sauerkraut and chocolate and sausages and all kinds of stuff? Um, would you be totally focused on chocolate? I have no idea. Like sky's the limit. Just curious what what. uh what, how would you imagine you spending your time once school is done and you have more freedom to make what you want? Yeah, this is a, this is a great question. And it's, it's funny how ingrained it is to, to put up obstacles for yourself because mm-hmm. as I'm thinking through this, like <laughs> one right after the other, every thought I have, like there's another one right after it. It's like, you can't do that. That's not, that won't work. Like the, that would be a huge headache, you know, all, all these, uh, fights within my own head. But if I try really hard to get rid of those, the naysayers and the actual real world, uh, challenges, you know, on which I think the naysayer thoughts are mostly based. Um, I would say I would not just do chocolate. I would keep doing chocolate and I would do other things. I would basically, you know, just do whatever I wanted. I would wake up every day and say, hmm, what's interesting to make today? What sounds fascinating? Uh, what, what would be a challenge? Um, but upon completion, would still have been really worth it. And I think it could be anything. Like it could be a hot sauce or it could be, um, certainly any number of savory food products, you know, from cheese to, well, not, not totally savory balsamic, which I I had already worked on before, but still find fascinating. And I guess technically I couldn't call it that. Um, but something, a product similar to that. I mean, I find fermented foods just to be the most kind of awe-inspiring foods of all. I mean, although obviously fresh fruits and vegetables from the garden are pretty damn good, but there's so much complexity inherent in fermented foods, and there's so many things that can go wrong and that can go right in unexpected and incredibly delicious ways. I mean, bread and wine and cheese and, and, uh, chocolate, obviously. And then hot sauce too, often fermented. Uh, the list just really goes on and on. Fermentation is fascinating. 
And so maybe I would end up doing a lot more fermented foods and selling them under a Patrick, something akin to a Patrick fine foods brand. But, but yeah, going back to the real world, uh, probably unlikely that I could do something like that, but you know, keep it in mind. Who knows how things can change. I agree. I think that a lot of the time what gets in the way of us creating whatever we want is our own selves and deciding that that's not possible. Um, so I think it's worth just thinking about it and imagining what, what that would look like, because when we don't even give ourselves permission to think about what that might look like, we can't make any progress towards, towards that. What do you think, Bikey? I just, keep- I'm glad I know how to say your last name, by the way. I, I was <laughs> in my head. It was always Beaky. That's okay. And then I was, and then I thought maybe it's Bakey, but Bikey never, never crossed my mind. It doesn't cross most people's minds, which is, which is fine. What, what's in a name anyway? Right. Just like my lineage. Proper pronunciation. Were you asking me what the pronunciation was? No, it is. I was joking about how I'm pleased with myself that I remember how to pronounce your last name because we're always mispronouncing things. Yeah, You you actually don't. I just have yet to correct you that you're wrong. So that's not true. (laughs) (laughs) So did you have one last question, Brian? I, I think I cut you off. I'm sorry. Oh, no. No, she was, um, Sunita was just saying if I had anything to add and I was just going to say that all that was on my mind during that was, um, a chocolate version of like, um, molecular gastronomy and wondering if you were going to go into something like that, but you didn't, that's totally fine. You know? Yeah, no, I find, I find those sorts of things interesting too. And, you know, I have a variety of, of books related to that are sort of either dealing specifically with molecular gastronomy or um, somewhat related. You know, I listen to a lot of, uh, in terms of podcasts, a lot of food podcasts, David Arnold, Cooking Issues, uh, Dave Arnold rather, not David Arnold, a uh, different person, um, which is kind of a weird podcast that's like mostly screwing around but every now and then some really good food related information. Sounds like our podcast. I, I think there's a lot more good information on this one than screwing around. This is really a lot more screwing around, but I still, I love the podcast anyway. I listen to it every time. Um, and so I, you probably have to cut out the advertising, the shameless advertising for someone else's podcast, nah. which is fine. Nah, that's okay. But, uh, but yeah, I think he, he worked a little bit, with some chefs in the New York area on molecular gastronomy related things. I think Wiley Dufresne, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, at WD 50, I think, uh, which I believe does not exist anymore as a restaurant. But, uh, well, yeah, I mean, food is fat. Food's a fascinating thing. And who doesn't like to eat delicious food? I mean, even people who don't seem to put very much of an emphasis on it, if you give them good food, they still appreciate it. So it's, I don't know. It's not figuring out how to do a brain transplant in terms of importance, you know, making chocolate, for example. But, uh, but I think you can 
have a positive impact on more people more regularly, uh, you know, albeit a, a smaller one. And, you know, people appreciate it. People appreciate the effort that it takes to make good food. So I often feel that the whole point of everything is to sit around a table with food that you've cooked together with others or by yourself um, and enjoying that meal. Like it feels like that's pretty much it, you know, with people that you care about and that you like spending time with. Um, it's, I guess there's a reason that that's kind of the focus of so many cultures around the world is, you know, breaking bread, being together and eating delicious food that you've spent, you've put love and time and energy into. Doesn't get much better than that. <laughs> Um, thank you so much, Alan, for making time and like adapting last minute and racing off to work to record there because landline was not going to be a great quality, saw sound quality. I'm glad. It's my pleasure, Sunita. And it's a pleasure also to talk to you, Brian. I know we have uh, been emailing back and forth for a long, long time. And I think you first contacted me about a your coffee podcast. Is that right? Yeah. To talk about chocolate, but Sunita did a better job, I think of, um, of getting to a lot of the questions than I probably would have. So mine probably would have led off with what's your favorite bar that you make and your favorite bar <laughs> that you do not make. So. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, I appreciate your reaching out and I, I definitely did go and listen to uh, some of those podcasts. I recall the, there's a, you might have recommended a Panamanian geisha episode mm -hmm. in particular that, uh, that I found fascinating. I'm not, I drink coffee regularly, but I'm not hugely knowledgeable about it. So I, and, I found it since having him on and since recommending it to you, I, I got to visit that farm about a, almost a year ago, um, around this time in April. So it was really nice. Good little place that Panama. I've never been to Panama. Panama! <laughs> okay, goofballs, 